0: Welcome to Eat Well, Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast with Eric Wolf and Ashi Vale, where we help you become a better industry professional by gaining inspiration from some of the world's most successful people in the food and beverage tourism industry. With each episode, we meet these leaders and examine their secrets of success. We reveal the obstacles and challenges they have faced, along with their solutions and triumphs, and give you ideas and inspirations for many of the same business issues that you may be facing as well. And now for today's episode. Welcome. I'm Eric Wolf and I'll be your host today for episode 40 of Eat Well Travel Better, the business of food travel podcast. And joining me today is co-host Ashi Vale. Today we'll be speaking with Yorm Akowaku. Born and raised in Ghana, Yorm moved to the US for college when she was only 19 years old. After college, she worked primarily in the corporate world, including positions in accounting, finance, business, and consulting. Yorm was pulled into the food world from her experiences living abroad when she realized the limited representation of African foods in major cities and in food media. This discovery inspired Yorm to found Essence 13, a food media platform that amplifies the work of African chefs and food entrepreneurs around the world. Yorm also hosts her own podcast about African-inspired cuisines called Item 13. Welcome, Yorm.
1: Hi, welcome. Thank you for having me on, Eric Ashi. Hi, Yom. Um,
2: we are so excited to speak with you. You're the first Ghanaian we've interviewed. And oh, great. And would love to hear your story. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how that has influenced what you do now?
1: Like Eric mentioned in, in the introduction, I was born and raised in Ghana in West Africa. And I don't think I grew up sort of um, what I thought was normal, right? I grew up in a bustling city of Accra. Um, parents, both educated, and so education was a very big priority for them. And so I probably from middle school onwards, I always knew that I would be coming to the U.S. for college. In terms of early memories of food or working with food or whatever, I think it was only when I moved here that I realized that the importance of food in sort of the cultural and identity, I guess, of who I am. And so we grew up sort of eating, I would say, original farm-to-table. On weekends, my mom would take us to the market. We would buy fresh vegetables. We would go to the butcher from there. We would go to the beach to get our fish. I was used to eating fresh food. And then I moved to to the U.S., Milwaukee, actually, for college, where my first experience with super processed food began. <laughs> In college, we're required to have cafeteria food it was part of our package for the first year or second year. And I just couldn't stomach it. And I think that for me started to register the differences between my experience at home and here in the States. Fast forward to maybe five years ago, I got an assignment to work abroad. So I was working um, in, in banking in New York City and I got the opportunity to work abroad and in Frankfurt specifically where I started specifically to look out for um, African food. I was just looking for a, a feeling of home. One, it was hard to find. And then two, just in business meetings, either my coworkers or my clients would ask, like, what is African food? What do you guys eat? And that sort of was the push for me to start a small Instagram account where I just started sharing what I cooked in my kitchen, at least what I could find in Frankfurt. So things like peanut butter I could use to make um, peanuts, West African peanut stews, for example. Um, and in studying that work online, I started then to discover other people that I thought were doing it way better than I was. And so then I changed the focus of my, po- my account to focus on the work of those people. And as I started to interact with them, I started to learn sort of their challenges in putting their food out into the world, whether it was from a business perspective, marketing um, even fundraising, um, and so then started to create programming and resources for them in order to help them sort of raise the profile of their work, and that then led eventually to building a podcast, creating events, and doing all of the work that I do with with Essence um, 18.
2: Oh, that's fascinating. Um, you mentioned your goal being, you know, really highlighting the work and stories of all those who are showcasing African cuisine around the world. Can you tell us about some of those people who are doing it and how they are bringing African cuisine to the global
1: dining table? Oh, uh, that's interesting. Gosh, who do I start with? Where do I start? One of my favorite people is Chef Selassie Atadika, who's Ghanaian. She's based in Accra, but she 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 has a worldview because she's worked. she's also lived and worked abroad. Her background is actually from working with the UN, um, UNHCR, so she worked with refugee populations across the continent in Africa, and that sort of pushed her into the food world too, because she was looking at the food that was served to refugees. A lot of it was imported, and it was bland food that was quote-unquote fortified for nutrition, and that was surprising to her and also disappointing because of all the rich nutrients, dense foods that we have on the continent, and so she She left the she left the u n, went to the CIA, the CIA meaning the culinary Institute. Of <laughs> this, this this I don't know uh, went to the CIA in New York and then became a chef. And the work she's doing now in a and around the world is she has this nomadic dining format where she creates what she calls new African cuisine. So she really focuses on. Ancient grains, ancient ingredients that we don't eat as much anymore because we're eating a lot more imported rice or corn, etc. And she's using that. She's using those old, quote unquote, old ingredients to create new, um, new flavors, new dishes that make it more interesting and exciting for a global audience. So she's one of those people whose work, like, I really admire and and I find inspirational. And then just across the board, there's just people doing like from every major city I've been in, there's people doing things with fusing different, I would say, I would call them Pan-African fusion. So fusing stuff from West and East Africa, for example. One particular experience I got to take part in when I lived in Johannesburg. Um, I lived in Johannesburg for two years and it's actually, <laughs> it was a disappointing experience in terms of food for me. I always tell people because one of the reasons I was excited to move there was I wanted to experience a different part of the continent's cuisine, right? But particularly in Johannesburg, A lot of the food is international or continental, as they call it. And you'd really have to go out of your way to townships and kind of on the outskirts of town to get authentic South African food. But in a small suburb of of Johannesburg, there's a guy called Sansa who creates these beautiful Pan-African dinners. They are family-style dinners. So you walk in and everybody has to help a little bit in the beginning (laughs) to set the table to, because that's how Africans eat. We eat communally, we eat to get like family style, regardless of who's at the table. And he does this beautiful mishmash of like you have a moroccan bread with a west african stew he does with alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages using indigenous african ingredients and you'll find everything from liberian food to egyptian food and he'll tell you because of where he hosts these dinners he'll tell you i'm south african i know that i'm not you know i'm not from liberia i'm not from senegal but i'm learning how to make these dishes from the people in this neighborhood He will he'll share stories about how he's walking down the street and he smells something really good and he basically follows his nose to where he's smelling the thing from and he'll find, I don't know, a Nigerian woman, a Liberian woman making this absolutely delicious stew. And he'll ask her to learn to teach him. And so he'll spend a couple of weeks with this woman learning how to do it, and then he brings that to his table. I like what he does because it attracts one because of where his where he hosts these dinners. Um, it pulls people outside of like the main city into a community that's extremely diverse. So it's your village where, where he hosts these dinners. It's super diverse, like pan-African diverse. So you find West African immigrants where you don't find as much of that in, in the major cities. Meaning that you, you would not find um, people from different sort of African countries living and working together in that way. And so he really uses one, both the location and then two, like his experiences, to tell the African story through food. And then part of the dinner conversation is we talk about everything from African identity, culture, colonization. And so it's, it's a really interesting, it's a two and a half hour dinner, I would say. But when I, he does this in his own small, I wouldn't say his own small corner, because he's been featured on Anthony Bourdain, went to Yeovil. <laughs> to do one of Sansa's dinners. So he's been featured internationally too, but he's very adamant about staying in the community. He's been offered, he said, opportunities to go out into the big city and do bigger things, but he's very community focused. And that for me is one of the highlights of the dining experiences I've had.
0: When you were in Joburg, did you happen to go to Wandi's place?
1: No, no, no. Where is, what is one of Where is one? Well, place?
0: it's also in one of the townships. And when oh, I was okay. there, I was living in Cape Town for six months and I went up to Toburg oh, cool. and the tourism office took me on a little tour and I wanted to experience uh, one of these restaurants. And so they took me there and it was fascinating. It was really just local people. But it was also a place that was known by tourists. So they had currencies from around the world. People mm. would put a Australian dollar or a Hong Kong dollar on the wall, that kind of thing.
1: Oh, you know, that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar, actually. Yeah,
0: it was really interesting. But I would like to ask you about what people call African cuisine, because I imagine <laughs> you must be so frustrated when people Put all of Africa together as one cuisine and back to my experience in Cape Town there was a restaurant called the Gold Cafe and the did you ever visit that do you are familiar with that one
1: is this the one um where like there's a many there's an interesting um, restaurant in Cape Town is it is it Pan-African essentially? Exactly.
2: yeah, yeah
1: I th- I've, been, I've been there yes where you basically you, you can have a taste of everything and then after that you decide what you want
0: that is exactly uh, correct. Yeah. So for our <laughs> listeners, you you get to basically tour all of Africa. It comes to your table, they they walk around and they they let you sample dishes. And then you decide, okay, well, I think I really like that Ugandan dish or maybe mm-hmm. the Ethiopian one. But I think that it really helps people to understand that when you talk about African cuisine, there's hundreds. I mean, you know, there's maybe there's two dozen major cuisine groups, but there's hundreds of small ones. I mean, how do you how do you begin to define that?
1: Yeah, I, you don't. <laughs> you don't Just the short answer. And it's, it's one big pet peeve of mine. And even calling the, the podcast and Africa, because I used to just call it item 13, because I wanted people to ask the question, like, what is item 13? And then have that discovery, that curiosity and discovery piece of it. But then from the marketing, I went through a podcast marketing program or whatever and was convinced to include that African food tagline. But it's not my, my favorite way to describe our cuisine or to reference it. And well, now so, you have to tell us, Yom, what is item 13? <laughs> <laughs> oh, item 13 is slang. It's, it's Ghanaian slang for food or a meal or a snack. And it originates from way back during uh, the time when the British colonized Ghana. And from what I heard from my parents, grandparents anyway, that um, usually in meetings or events, the 13th item on the agenda was always food. And so over time, people would say, like, if they, were go- if they were going to a meeting, they would ask, is there item 13 or what's item 13? And then <laughs> just over time, it's just become a part of of our slang or our, our language when we refer to food. So. I can't
2: believe it's so low down in the agenda for me it would be item 2. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like business first, food second. It's actually probably countercultural if you think about um, African culture and you know the the role of food in in gatherings and whatnot, but um, but yeah.
2: And can you tell us more about Ghanaian cuisine? Ayom you know, I've heard of jollof rice, which I've heard is, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, originates in Senegal. And, you know, they'll tell me if that's right or not. But right. yeah. What are some of the staples and what do you consider traditional Ghanaian dishes?
1: Um, yeah, so it's very interesting because the podcast episode I just recorded or I just aired this week, actually, with a guy from Senegal, who's from no, not from Senegal, from Zimbabwe, excuse me. Um, when I asked him the same question about Zimbabwean food, and his response was, "There's no such thing as Zimbabwean food," and that there are, and that made me stop and think about, uh, you know, because one our countries were arbitrarily carved by, you know, um, the Europeans when they came, and so a lot of the food you'll find in Ghana, you'll find sort of across West Africa, depending on how you you look at it. And so we t- now I'm trying to call it tribal foods. And so as you think about Ghana and how it's divided in terms of tribal groups or which parts of the countries, like in the south, because we are along um, the Atlantic Ocean, I believe, um, there's a lot of seafood. So we eat a lot of fish, shrimp, and it's a lot of it because we don't have or we grew up with um, sort of traditional preservation methods. So you find a lot of smoked fish, um, salted fish, and that's used to create, even fermented fish, that's used to create um, stews, tomato, a lot of tomato-based stews that can be spicy depending on who's who's having it. We also do a lot of tomato-based soups as well, a lot of green, leafy vegetables that are used in a variety of different ways. And then staples in terms of carbs, we do um, cassava, we do plantain quite a bit, which some people call banana, which I always try to correct people, bananas are not plantains. Plantains are like larger, they are starchier, and then you can use them from the time they are green to super ripe in a variety of different ways. We also do um, with corn and fermented corn, we do a lot of different types of what people would call dumplings, I guess, and then pair that with with a peanut-based soup or stew. In terms of game meat, we we do goat meat quite a bit, and then just regular beef, chicken. And then if you go to certain parts of now, we move up to the middle of the country. Certain parts of the middle of the country, uh, you find a lot of game, what they call bush meat, which or cutter, which are essentially huge rodents <laughs> that I'm that I'm not a fan of because when you see it, you you can tell that it's a it's a rodent but they are smoked and stretched out on like sticks and so that's a delicacy like a street food and then as you move up north where it's a drier climate you'll find more grains a lot of the food they eat is hatchier just because of the nature where they're at and so one of the proteins there is guinea fowl which is a very it's poultry it's a very I I guess it doesn't taste like chicken it's stringier it's tougher just by virtue of where it's grown and how it's how it's eaten and prepared. So it's a variety of different things. But underlying all of that, I think for me, is flavor. So the spices and the flavors, tomato base is big, peanut, peanut flavors are big. And then just this plantain and cassava you'll find consistently through a lot of our foods in terms of statures. It sounds like depending on the region, the cuisine
2: varies some or quite a bit. I'm always curious to hear about breakfast in different parts of the world. So, what would you typically eat for breakfast in Accra?
1: In Accra. So, that's also a very interesting question because I think there's been the British influence has been significant in that way. So, a lot of people will have tea actually. We'll have tea with bread, with bread and, you know, eggs or if you on street food, a lot of people have just because of how crazy traffic gets in the city. At least you find people, you know, getting on the roadside like, but we have our local bread. So we have we have a super sweet bread that's called (laughs) called sugar bread and then tea breads, which are more like I would akin to a, a French baguette. Um, where then people would do fried eggs with all sorts of different vegetables and whatnot. But more traditionally, sort of how I grew up and how probably Chef Selassie grew up, we would have a lot of porridges, so porridges made from grains. So we would have corn porridges that we call cocoa. And Then up north, they use millet and spices to make, for me, it's my favorite, favorite Ghanaian breakfast. It's a spicy porridge known as, um, well, they call it hausa cocoa. And it's essentially when you look at it, it's like a pale brown coloring. But then you throw in, like, you can throw in nuts. I usually like it with either ground nuts or cashew nuts. You add a little bit of milk and sugar, and it's just an explosion of flavor in your mouth. It's, and it's health, it's super healthy for you because it's made like straight from fresh millet that's ground and then cooked in a lot of water and spices, boiled up for. I would say 30 minutes or so, and then served with all the different sides. That's my favorite. And then you have rice porridges, wheat porridges also, like fresh wheat porridges also. That I remember growing up as being like super traditional. So mostly porridge type like grain-based porridges I would say would be more traditional but then a lot of people as as we've I don't want to evolve as the wrong way but as we've developed I guess and just with the pace of life now you'll find a lot more you'll find coffee shops and so people are into coffee now and then one thing I discovered during during the podcast too was that Ghana produces coffee which was news to me so there's a lot of um coffee being Ghanaian-based coffee companies that are you know processing, grinding their own beans. And so now when I go home, I make sure to look for made in Ghana coffee beans to bring back, yeah.
0: It all sounds so delicious. And I think that what you've just illustrated is a perfect example of what people don't know about African cuisines. I mean, people maybe have heard of Marcus Samuelsson, but he's Ethiopian Mm -hmm. and Swedish, you know.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And then
0: there's Pierre Thiam from Senegal, who's also Mm -hmm. relatively well-known. But what you just described sounds lovely. Maybe not the sweet bread, though. I might not do that. But let's talk a little bit now about your, your professional journey. And, and now that we understand a little bit more about Ghana and the geography and some of the food, which sounds wonderful, how did you learn some of the, the things that you've learned in life? Because I see that you you have a partnership with the Heritage Radio Network. Mm-hmm. You've worked with entrepreneurs and helped them in a kind of consulting type capacity. So how did this journey E- develop for you because obviously you you went to school in the United States and then you, you worked in the corporate arena, but yeah. then you you went off on your own and you started to to learn things and how did it all come together for you?
1: That is so interesting. And when people ask me that, you know, one of my friends told me like you need to keep a journal like every day because then you can tell your story a little bit better. Because for me for me, it seemed like it came naturally to me. So like I said, when in Frankfurt, when I discovered, you know, so I created that Instagram account, I started getting in touch with, with entrepreneurs. And then one of the first things I taught was, well, I guess in in the background, um, I don't think I mentioned, I also have a, a degree in IT. One of the first experiences that I created back home in Ghana, for Essence 13 in general, but this happened back home in Ghana was a food hackathon. And this was just one, based on my experience, you know, in, in tech, my own experience in tech, and then trying to, or being immersed in the technology space in, in Ghana and seeing a lot of the interesting things that people were doing. And I was disappointed that a lot of what people were doing in the tech space was focused on creating like the next app, you know, to be able to raise funds and then exit and make, you know, million, a million dollars for whatever. When I thought there were tangible problems that they could be solving using their skill set and so that sort of was the brainchild for creating what I guess what is now the first food hackathon on the continent and so the idea was to bring people with technical skills together with those in the food space to come together spend a weekend basically a traditional hackathon come together spend a weekend trying to figure out how do we actually this ties into (laughs) to food and travel like how do we use our our food economy, I guess, to improve our tourism profile in the world. Because I thought, especially based on my experience outside of Ghana, that there's just a lot in terms of our food and food culture that people don't know. In Ghana, it's a great tourist destination one because it's English-speaking and it's easier to navigate than most, at least in West Africa, one of the easier ones to navigate. And so we've made tourism one of our big economic drivers but we, we've made it more on the back of the fact that we were one of the first countries where the Europeans came. So we have all these castles and so people tend to come to visit for the beaches and then that sort of slave history. And I thought like, there's ways, what are the ways we can use tech, you know, this budding tech scene to help sort of push forward the food story. And so that was the first sort of interesting thing. And, and in terms of the skill sets. I don't, like, it's hard to say, like, I just did what needed to be done, you know, like, I think because I had friends in tech that had organized hackathons before, I leaned on them to help me think about how to create that weekend. I learned how to do social media on my own. Like, I guess it's great now that in 20, I guess back then, 2014, 2015, you can go online now and learn anything. And then just from there, fast forward to even the podcast, I knew nothing about, (laughs) editing, you know, editing sound, trying to figure out all the technical pieces of putting together a podcast. But now you go online, it's pretty easy to to get that information together. So I think the challenge for me, more than anything, was not getting the information. It was about managing my time. Because in terms of the work I was doing in the corporate world, I was working crazy 60, 70 hour weeks. And so it's about managing my time to make sure that I could do the stuff I wanted to do in food and do it well, while also meeting the commitments that I had for my for my day job. And so it was just really about getting organized and at times getting help. But in the beginning, it was tougher to get help because in my mind, I, I had no clear direction, right? And one of the things that I say when people ask me, like, how did you do this? How, I think it's just one step in front of the other. Like I didn't have a big picture sense of like where am I taking this I would just have an idea and try to execute it or I would meet someone that I thought was doing something interesting and I would ask how can I help and they'd be like oh I'm trying to like I want to create this type of event but I don't have the skill sets or the time or whatever and I would help them do it so it was more of um I didn't have a grand big plan of this is what I'm gonna do it's it was just one foot in front of the other it's how I would describe <laughs> describe it more than anything else it's interesting how that sometimes is, how ideas and
2: solutions and companies form. <laughs> it's yeah. not like you go in with a big grand plan. <laughs> Yom, can you talk about some of the more interesting solutions that came out of the food hackathons?
1: Um, sure. So there's only been one, unfortunately, just because, again, with time constraint, <laughs> with time constraint with work, I did that, that big one and it was incredibly successful and it was kind of disappointing that I wasn't able to go back and do it again just cuz I was strapped in terms of what I was doing for my day job but I would say the biggest thing that came out of it was a platform I, I don't know if Airbnb was born then but the idea was to empower local food businesses if you or local food entrepreneurs let's say not businesses per se so the the winning idea I remember very clearly was called Bedidi, which in which which is um, a Ghanaian language in tree, but it in English means come, come and eat, or come let's eat. And the idea was they they created this platform where if you were tourist coming to Ghana you, and you were interested in Ghanaian food, for example, you would go and sign up and maybe you were interested in and I like I like this idea because I wasn't part of the judging panel. So so but I was glad that this was the idea that one because I like that it had nuance in 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 helping people think about what food experience they wanted to have. So you go on the site and you decide, oh, I wanna try Toza Fee, for example, which is a north north northern Ghanaian dish. And so you go on the site, there's education pieces around what Toza fee is, what it means, and then you can find a couple of people that will make it for you either in their homes or as part of their businesses. So it's kind of like. I call it an Airbnb for food. Maybe someone living in a crowd who is originally from northern Ghana and wants to share her culture with you. You sign up, maybe there's a group of maximum five people. She hosts you in her home. She tells you, you know, the story of herself, the food, et cetera. And just really truly having an authentic experience versus going to eat in a hotel. Whatever in 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 Ghana, so that was the the brilliant idea. Unfortunately, like I never again followed up with with that, and which is part of why today I eventually quit my corporate job because I, I I thought there were a lot of good things that I started that I never I wasn't able to see through to the end or at least help push it forward just because my full time job did not allow allow me to so. <laughs> you so many of us,
2: you know, think about how we can better connect cultures over food mm-hmm. and give travelers a chance to meet a local, visit their home, share a meal. And that, I believe, is how you that's the power of travel is to, you know, meet people yeah. from around the world and feel I, so and connected I, and learn through food.
1: I, I agree. And I think it's a missed opportunity, especially in the Ghanaian sort of tourism landscape, because a lot of the Ghanaian experiences, tourism experiences, are at least are catered to what people think is the Western idea of what a tourist should experience. And so a lot of what is being built up is similar, which I think is sort of counterintuitive, is similar to what people would experience back home. So you'll find a lot of nightclubs, you'll find a lot of restaurants that look like a restaurant in Soho in New York, like their aesthetic and all of that, which is which can be fine, I guess, for certain scenarios, but I think in terms of promoting local tourism for me personally, doesn't work. And um, one of the things, I actually don't know if I mentioned that, but but since I left the corporate world, one of the things I'm working on now is, um, I just opened a restaurant in Accra. And one of the goals of that is to, one is to be super focused on, hyper focused on local food, presenting and creating it, creating different ways to experience both sort of in in some ways, like what Selassie is doing in terms of presenting local food in new ways, but then also creating a space for people to actually appreciate that. So there's going to be education components of that and just involving the creative arts community too, because I think there's a lot to do in terms of experiencing African culture. So we're working with up and coming um, local musicians. We're working with artists, you know, people that paint do sculptures and thinking about how do we create a truly holistic experience with food at the center of it all. Um, I'm hoping that that sort of while there are more interesting things now than there were maybe five years ago, I'm hoping that this space that we're creating also allows people to really, truly appreciate what we have to offer the world versus trying to be be more Western in their approach to to tourism. That sounds wonderful. What's the restaurant called? It's called dawa dawa, which is it's a spice. It's a West African spice, incredibly pungent. It's it's I would say I don't know like I guess Asians have durian. Is that is that a du- durian, which is a fruit I guess? But like this is a spice that you you will know it when it's in your food. And so the idea is to to um, to um, permeate all aspects of of African culture through 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 food. And then it's also super hardy. You can use it in different ways. And we just like the idea that it's, you, you can find it also in different parts of Africa, not just West Africa. It just translates differently. And so wanted it to, to also embrace the Pan-Africanism <laughs> of, of our food culture. And um, one of the things we also want to do, just based on my experience with Essence 13, is to create a chef. I, we call it, I'm calling the chef residency program, but that might not be the right term, but we really want to, at some point, start to host Chefs from around the continent and around the world that are doing interesting things with their specific national foods so that even people, local Ghanaians, can get a taste of what true Senegalese food is or what true Zimbabwean food is right at home in Ghana.
0: Yorm, I, I can't believe how much you've accomplished. You're not that old and you've done a food <laughs> hackathon. You've got a food consulting business. You were featured in Food & Wine magazine recently. You've created a, a new restaurant in Accra. What's next? I mean, I'm, I'm almost scared to, to hear
2: what you're going to say.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, what's next? That's, that's I try not to think about it too much because it's scary. <laughs> what's next I think for me immediately what's next because I tend to sort of think about things in maybe two year increments and now because I'm not working in corporate I also feel like I have the freedom to explore different things right now what I'm working on is an e-commerce platform if you if I want to call it that I guess but it's going to be I'll call it that for simplicity's sake but a platform that's going to have a a component of it is going to be educational so when I want to start to educate people about the differences and the nuances and what what you would call African food so one across the continent by country and then two within within countries what are the differences so in the same way that people now more people at least can distinguish between North Indian and South Indian food or even Italian food people can tell you like oh this is this is from x part of Italy I want people to be able to have that nuance and so there'll be more education pieces which I think for the food bloggers that I've, I've interacted with, would be a great place for them to showcase their work. It's another potential revenue stream for them in terms of creating content and getting paid for it. Also then, second part of that platform would be e-commerce. So again, just from all of the people I speak to either on my podcast or in my travels, one of the big challenges as people are now creating their own sources as spices is access to marketplaces. Whether it's your local grocery stores or even trying to create their presence online, they are finding it increasingly challenging. And so I want to create a platform that would allow them to showcase their work and sell some of these products. And then lastly, for now at least, who knows how it will evolve. The last part of the platform would be, I guess you could call it a directory. Yeah, let's just for simplicity's sake, a directory of like African food businesses around the world, because I found it extremely challenging as I moved and traveled around the world. Um, last fall, I was in Amsterdam and I was looking for West African food specifically, because I knew if I typed in Ghanaian food, like I wouldn't find it in, within Google. And so I searched for West African food. And then what I ended up finding was not really it. And then I, I've just had that problem just across the board. And so I want to create a powerful search engine almost between the dire- a directory that has a powerful back end engine so that someone can search specifically for Eritrean food in London and find it and not be shown just all sorts of African options. So that is one of the problems I'm trying to solve there because it's a problem that I specifically have faced where I've looked for West African food and been directed to Ethiopian food places. <laughs> That
2: sounds great, Yorm. I would love to use that search engine. <laughs> Yorm, as you think we're hearing about your wonderful ideas for the future, what about looking back into the past? If you could give mm. yourself a single piece of advice to a younger oh, wow. version of you, what would that be?
1: Wow. There's so, so many things I've learned. I would say maybe two things. One, because someone told me this when I was hesitating to do my very first event, at Craft Food Hackathon. Was to not be afraid of what I I don't know if language is (laughs) a thing here, but he said don't be afraid of the FSD, and I was like, what's the FSD? He basically said the first you know shitty draft because it took me a long time to to come to that first event because I was incredibly worried about like everything had to be perfect and I just spent so much time worrying about it that I think I lost time even and so. For me, if I go back to my younger self, I would say, just do it. Like, don't be afraid of being perfect. Take that first step and then it will lead you on to, you know, to do the next thing and the next thing. And I mean, although it sounds like I've done a lot, there's a lot of other things that I didn't take advantage of or didn't do, honestly, because I was afraid that it wouldn't be quote unquote perfect. And so I've been trying to, (laughs) we are even with this platform, I'm telling I was just telling you about I started thinking about that maybe a year ago, and I I just, it's taken me some time to get to the point where I'm like, this is worthy of putting out into the world, and so, because I've thought about how it has to be, all the pieces have to be perfect, and just had a conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago that said, you know, there's, it's, that's a huge undertaking, and you don't have to do all of it at once, just do one part of it, and as, as you put it out in the world, you'll get feedback and help and all of that, and then you can move it forward, and so. Even to my older self now, I need to listen to that. <laughs> well, like... that's...
2: <laughs> that's great advice though, Yorm. Even to entrepreneurs, you know, don't the quote I think is that don't let perfection get in the way of progress. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: So Jorm, I really liked your idea of delegating by collaborating. Tell us how you came to learn that.
1: That's actually simple, just because I didn't have enough time so as I was saying again because my 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 full time I, unfortunately I've never had a true nine to five job all of the jobs I've had have been incre- incredibly intense and so over time I just realized especially when I worked in London uh, in Europe in general but specifically in, in London, I put on the first africa what did you call it Africa food week. Af- London Africa Food Week or something. I miss my one of those words, like a week long celebration of African food in London. When I, I came up with the idea and that one, because I knew I was going to be in London for an extended period of time and I had just been in touch with so many people doing interesting things, again, because London is such a diverse space and there's so many of these people doing interesting, creative things in London, I thought, why not do it then? But I just, because I was also going to London for a specific project, which is going to take up. A whole bunch of my time, I thought the best way to do it is by truly collaborating with people and having them sort of run the show. So while I was going to be under the umbrella of Essence 13, I would have, so as part of the, the week-long event schedule, we had panel discussions, we had pop-up dinners, what else did we do? We had a food business pitch competition. So with the pitch competition, for example, I delegated different, like I had the vision for it. I drew up all, everything that needed to be done. But I relied on, for example, my um, MBA peer network to help the different entrepreneurs that were going to be pitching to refine their pitches, to help them figure out how to tell their business story. So I didn't have to be hands-on with that. I worked with Impact Hub in London, one for the space, and then two, just because of their experience working with startups. They brought up the judges, they helped with a price package. And so for me, while I was, I was still hands-on, A lot of the heavy lifting, some of that heavy lifting was done by reaching out to people who had the expertise so that one, I created relationships with those people, but then two, it allowed me to delegate while I was attending to my my full-time job. And, I, and and actually, I found that to be more satisfying in some ways, because these people also felt a sense of pride, impact that they were doing this important work. And then there was also free delicious food to go around with it, too. So it was a win-win for for everybody in a lot of ways.
2: and we've learned so much from you today. Thank you. We As we wrap up, one last question that I had mm-hmm. was, you know, you're very inspiring and in getting people to to sort of really do different things and do what they love. What advice do you have for others seeking to showcase their culture or cuisine?
1: Seeking to showcase your culture or cuisine, I think the big lesson I've learned and I was just sharing with someone was that it's easy to be so immersed in your own culture that you, you you may think you don't have anything to offer and that too, it's not going to be novel or new or interesting to other people the maybe the short advice um, that Nike would say is just do it. (laughs) You'll be you will be surprised by the the impact you'll make the lives you'll touch for something that you think is quite simple. Like I just thought I'm doing this thing because I'm interested in it. And even this week someone sent me a private message after listening to one of my podcast episodes, which I I mean I I really appreciate the stories that I share, but maybe I'm also losing how the impact that it's having on people's entrepreneur from, she's from New York, but she'd heard the story I'd shared from, you know, a woman in Toronto who was building an African soup business. And she said, thank you so much for what you do. Like you, she, she literally, her words were, you're doing God's work. Like I feel seen, like the. I'm trying to build, you know, a drink, African drink business. And it's super challenging. And just listening to this person's story, one was inspiring, but also I just feel like somebody else understands what I'm going through. And this, these sorts of things is, are not things that I would have imagined would come out of doing. I just wanted to share people's stories. So I guess that's, that's the thing I would say, just do it because you don't know who you're touching, who you're impacting unless you put it out there.
0: Yoram, you're such an inspiration. I really hope we get a chance to meet in person one day. And would you make me some West African peanut something <laughs> with Yeah.
1: Oh, I will direct you to someone who can make it much better. Yeah, okay. either way. <laughs> okay. Either way, I would be happy to.
0: All right. It's a deal. Well, Yoram, thank you again for taking the time to share your, your knowledge and experience with us. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. No, This was great. I, I enjoyed talking to you both.
2: Thank you, Yom. Really wonderful.
0: Thanks for listening today. The Eat Well, Travel Better podcast is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association, the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Our mission is to preserve and promote culinary cultures through hospitality and travel. By doing so, we empower local communities and entrepreneurs with the knowledge and tools needed to reach new food lovers and gain a competitive edge. Founded in 2003, now each year we shepherd a community of 200,000 professionals in more than 100 countries. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and you can learn more about it subscribe to our newsletter and join our family at worldfoodtravel.org. Until next time, eat well and travel better.